But now then I was watching last night that he said that maybe the president of Turkey planned the coup against himself so as to make himself look stronger uh, in, in Turkey. Uh, no real deep point about that except for that, it, that it's, it's an interesting intersection right now because the letters, again, remember the letters we are dealing with, these seven letters are to churches in what is modern day Turkey. And so uh, going on right now in a land that God wrote directly to is unrest in, in, unrest in the world. And so uh, for me, sometimes I think it's good when I'm connecting with Scripture to remind myself that there's real places that, that these exist that are, that are Scriptures, not connect, disconnected from reality, not disconnected from, from, from history. Uh, the letter this morning is to a church in, uh, in Turkey called Philadelphia. Um, and we're going to begin at verse 7, and I will just read to us. And to, the church, and to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, The words of the Holy One, the true one, the one who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you, are not, that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and uh, not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to those to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast to what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem which comes down from God out of heaven, and my own new name. He who has ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And so Philadelphia is one of only two churches. There's kind of a formula. Uh, uh, Jesus, as he comes and speaks to the churches, will say something good and something bad about the churches. Philadelphia, he has nothing bad to say about. And so he's going to launch into what he has to say to them. The point here, again, is not really even so much about, about Philadelphia, but rather who is Jesus and what kind of Jesus is revealed behind what he has to say to the church at Philadelphia. In this case, he says to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, right, the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of, of David. Right away, he is saying something about him himself, and what he is saying in this case is his claim to the name Holy One, is he's making a claim of divinity. He's essentially saying, I am God. I am the Holy One. Uh, the Revelation, as we said at the beginning, references the Old Testament either directly or by inference more than any other uh, book of the Bible. Probably all of the other books of the Bible combined. It's line by line by line where, where it's just Old Testament reference, Old Testament reference. But the Holy One would have been an Old Testament reference, a reference throughout Scripture. Jesus is making this claim, I am God. I am the Holy One, the words of the Holy One, the true one. And then he's going to say he has the key of David. Again, this is a, this is a reference to the Old Testament. It's a reference to, to Isaiah uh, 46. Actually, the, the key of, of David is, is again making this claim that he has, um, he has the ability to determine who is and who is not part of, of the kingdom. The key of David, he's the one who gets to say who is within and who wi is without the kingdom people. Who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts, no one will open. Again, the idea, he has the key. He is the one who, who calls his people. He is the one who says who his people are. He is the one who opens those doors. And if he opens them, they're open. And if he shuts them, no one will shut them. So he's telling them who he is. He always describes who he is. This is the one who I am. I am the divine one. I am the, the, the choosing one. I am the one who calls you in to, to the kingdom. What I open, I open. What I shut, I shut. But there is no, no in-between. He is speaking to his own sovereignty, to his own strength, to, to the fact that, that his, his, his plans are immutable. They're, not, they're immalleable. They're not changeable. No one can come against the plans of, of Jesus and succeed. He alone has 
has that power. And then he says, I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. And so he says to them, you church at Philadelphia, you are my, my people. And no one can make you not my people. No one can come to you. No one can say anything to you. No one can do anything to you that would make you not my people. Because I hold the keys to the kingdom and I have made you my people, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power. So this is a, this is a church, Philadelphia, that is not, that is not strong. It, it, it's a church that is not overwhelming, but it is a church that, that is faithful. It says, I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and not denied my name. The, the issue, as we're going to get into in a minute here, is that Philadelphia, uh, uh, like the other churches, on a trade route. Uh, it's a younger city than all the other cities, but it's on a trade route, and it happens, to be, uh, it happens to be prosperous outside of the church. There's all kinds of rich folk, uh, and, and the problem is not that they're rich. The problem is that they're rich, and they deny Jesus, and they deny Scripture, and they're using their power, and they're fine and all of their other things to come against and persecute the church in, in Philadelphia. And so they're using their strength against the, the church in, in, in Philadelphia. And he says, I know that you are, I have but little power, yet you have kept my word. They don't have power in, in, in the society. I think power is an interesting, uh, interesting word in general because I think what we're recognizing and seeing in, in, in America especially and within American Christianity is that the, 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 the lust for power is a very, 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 very strong, uh, strong lust. And so um, in, in our country, we have people, we have a presidential election coming up. Uh, we're starting to see uh, uh, commercials for, for the general election now. I cannot imagine how tired of those we will all be. By the time they, they stop running the, these commercials, uh, the epic battle between two, two amazingly unpopular uh, people. And so they're, they're running these, the, these commercials and they're showing again and again. And, and uh, the wonderful thing about our country is you get to vote for one of those people to lead us. Um, but that, that's not really the, the, the point. The point is is that you have these people in, in, in America, we have in, in uh, a system, and I really believe that at least one of those candidates is is running almost purely on the idea that he wants power or she uh, <laughs> one of those, but one there 's candidates out there. Uh, it seems to be more about power. It's about winning, and power is is seductive. It's, it's interesting. I was in. The, I remember I was in the in the Philippines. In in the Philippines, uh, one of our friends there had been an advisor to to the president, and she had gotten in trouble because before the election, she had threatened to to kill her opponent, and she had to be confronted on that. And so they they sent in our friend to confront her, at which she first denied it, but then they had it on tape, and so that they, they confronted her. But the Philippines being the Philippines, uh, she, she got to stay, stay president, even though it, it was proved. And then she got to run again for president. She was running again for, for president. But the thing about running for election in, in, in the Philippines is that it can be really, really dangerous. And I remember that her hometown was, was Baguio, and she was going to go home to her hometown, Baguio, um, on, on Christmas Day, but she couldn't go home to her hometown on Baguio on Christmas Day because there were so many threats on her life. If she showed up there, uh, they would kill her. So I said to her, I said, why does she keep running? Like, what is so great about this position that she has to have? Like, like I tend to think that most jobs, if you told me that there were going to be attempts on my life every day, that, that I would, I'd be like, thanks, you, you can keep that job. But apparently, power is so seductive, power is so seductive that, that you look into the face and you go, I could, I could have no threats against my life, or I could have threats against my life, and all the power, power is seductive. And we all know that even on a, on a little, a, a little tiny levels, right? You might not have had, had um, power, none of us have run for president, um, uh, the likelihood that any of us will ever be president is low, uh, but we've had like those those power moments, right? It's always funny to see to see the person, um, even young people, teenagers, when you put one of them in charge, and what happens to to the power? We happen to be uh, the church happened to be a site for one of the groups from Godwin to build their float, right? And uh, so I got to know the president of one of the classes pretty well. 
And by the end of it, I was willing to finance anybody's campaign against her in the next, in the next election uh, because her love of power was so, so, um, so strong. And so you may have never had like giant power, but you've been in charge of something and you know that goes to your head, whether it's watching your, watching your siblings as a babysitter for the first time and, uh, and, and those rules just get you. Uh, I personally almost lost my job as a safety uh, do you guys ever know what a safety is? The people get to wear the orange belts and tell people when to crossroads. Uh, I almost lost my job as a safety in the, in the fifth grade for abuse of power. Here's what went down. Um, they put me in charge of a road. I was in charge of Kenneth, uh, West Godwin Knights. You know, Kenneth. I didn't, I didn't even get the prime. Uh, Godwin Knights has, has, has Clyde Park and 36 intersecting. Those are the really good jobs. You get a crossing guard. I was in charge of Kenneth, which is one street off. It's a side street. I didn't get a crossing guard. But because I didn't have a crossing guard, I was in charge of the road. And apparently, um, I don't directly remember doing this. I just remember getting in trouble for it. Uh, Apparently, I was demanding uh, that people give a reason why I should let them cross the road. <laughs> that they should make a good, they should make a good argument. Like, why do you want to cross the road? Do you think you really deserve to cross the road? Should I let you cross the road? And so I was able to, I was able to stay in my job as a safety, but I was knocked down a few pegs for abuse of abuse of power. All of which to say is that power is seductive, and what you have here is the powerful the powerful outside the church coming against a church that has no power. And I think it's interesting that this church is, just says you have but little power. You don't have any power. And I think in the American church system, we go, oh, that poor church with no power. But it's one of those that's commended by Jesus 100%, and it never says anything against this church. And maybe, maybe this, um, this, this, desire we have, this thing where we feel like we need to be in power, maybe that's more about us than about anything that God would want from us. I remember one time we received a letter uh, as a church after we had done the, um, the, the mittens. Uh, we received a letter from North Godwin thanking us a thank you card, and it said, you are truly, truly small but mighty. It was a, it was a thank you card, and th- there was a part of me that had to, had to get over the fact that they called us small right? And so there's this thing. What is that? What is that thing? But here this church is commended, and they, it's a commendation directly from, from Jesus. And he says, I know you don't have much power, but you have kept my word. They've been, they've been faithful, and you have not denied my name. Over and against the, 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 the people who truly had the power, the people with the money, with the power, and all of the ability to persecute them, here this, this church that had not much power just stood and said, we'll stand against that attack. It says, Behold, I will make those who are synagogue of Satan, who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. So, the first time I read this, and, and several times I, I read this, here is how, here is how I re- read this, and it's probably a power orient that's naturally is. What I read was, so Jesus is going to take those people, those members of the synagogue of Satan, those who say they are Jews but are not. In other words, they're ethnically Jewish, but they're not following, uh, following the Messiah. And if Jesus is the Messiah of the Jewish people, then, then, then true Judaism comes through him. They're not, they're not following. So he is going to take these people, and he's going to show them how awesome Philadelphia is, and they're going to bow down, and they're going to bow down in humiliation. So I heard that originally in, in the language of humiliation, and so uh, if you're competitive, if you've, if you've done too much sports in, in your life, uh, if anyone's ever said to you, not everything's a competition, and you thought, yeah, it is, right? If you've ever been that person who views everything, when you read that, you're like, look at that. That's a turnabout. Those people who are persecuted are going to come, and they're going to bow down, and they're going to be humiliated. And so that's the way I read that until I realized that's not what's happening here. In fact, something much cooler is happening here because what is happening here is a great turnabout. It's a great flipping of the system. So here's what's happening is that you have this church with not much power. You have this church that's doing nothing but standing firm. They're testifying to the word, their works. He's seen their works. When we see works in Revelation, almost always should we interpret the word works as being those who testify to the good name of Jesus, those who do mission for Jesus, those who speak to his name. 
He said, I know your works. In other words, I know that you have continued to testify that I am Lord and God in spite of all this persecution. I know that you have been persecuted and I know that you don't have much power. And I know that those powerful people have come against you and they've tried to attack you. They've tried to defeat you. They've tried to defeat you. But wait, I'm about to do something. And what he's about to do, which I originally read as humiliation, is not humiliation. What he's about to do is something way cooler and way more supernatural. He is not, they are not coming to bow in humiliation. This is a bowing in worship. Not of the church at Philadelphia, but of the God of the church of, of Philadelphia. I was reading that, I actually came upon that, and I was reading through commentaries I was studying, and I hit that, I'm like, wait. And so one of the things... Uh, uh, the writer said, he said, in Revelation, when you see, see that, he said, that, that worship, uh, uh, you, when, when you see bow down, there, and worship, it's not compelled. It, it, um, how, do I, how do I say that? Uh, he, he just makes the point that, that when we see these things, we tend to read them in, in, in terms of humiliation, but that is seldom what's happening in Revelation. Then I went, that's interesting. So I went and checked other, and I'm like, no, that, the, there's, there's agreement Within, within the whole of, of people who do things like write and study and spend their whole lives studying books of the Bible, there's agreement that what is happening here is not that, that, that those who came against the Church of Philadelphia are coming in and being embarrassed because they came against them, but rather they're coming in and because of the testimony and the witness of the Church of Philadelphia, God is about to do something supernatural. And what he supernaturally does is he draws the synagogue of Satan, these ethnic Jewish people, he draws them back into his own people so that they they come, and when it says bow before, it doesn't mean that they're, they're worshiping uh, the church of uh, Philadelphia. It means that the church of Philadelphia is present when they bow before the, the lamb so that they know that Jesus has loved them. Because Jesus has loved them, they encounter that love. And what happens then is that in this city, a large number of, of Jewish people who had opposed them, who had been a synagogue of Satan, who had been persecutors, God is about to do something supernatural. And that supernatural thing is he is about to rescue those who seemed as if they were unrescuable on the basis of the fact of the works of, of fellow. He's seen their works, and he's about to do something supernatural. And... Uh, Frankly, that's a much cooler story than the way I'd ever, that I'd ever read it and the way I'd ever, ever seen it. That's a much cooler truth. So what God is about to do is something supernatural. So he goes back. He says, I set before you the open door. I'm the one who opens doors. I, what I shut, no one can shut. What I open, no one, uh, or what I open, no one can shut. What I shut, no one can, can open. He, he tells them who he is. He tells them he's the sovereign one. He tells them he's the one who draws people into, into the kingdom. He commends them for their good works and those works of sharing who he is, to be testifying to him, even in the face of, of amazing persecution, amazing pressure to abandon him. They never abandoned Jesus. They testified to him. And because of that, he does something supernatural. Behold, I will make those the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet and they will know that I have loved you. Jesus' love for the church of Philadelphia becomes so compelling, their works become compelling that those who are, who are uh, persecuting them will lay down their arms in persecuting but come into the church and bow before acknowledging that Jesus is Lord. It's way cooler than humiliation. It's not humiliation. They bow in worship of Jesus because Verse 10, because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world. So it's going to go into, into so I want to talk about a minute then. So here's an interesting thing. So this whole passage is largely based upon uh, prophecies out of, out of Isaiah. And um, the, the keys, the door, all that is Isaiah 46. But the whole thing has this background in, in Isaiah. And a really interesting thing happens here because if you remember, we actually preached uh, through Isaiah a while back. We taught through Isaiah. You remember that we taught various passages where Isaiah prefigures or, or speaks forward to a time when all the nations of the earth will come into Zion. And when the nations come into Zion, in other words, when Jesus draws the nations into Zion, it would be like a river flowing uphill. It would be, it'd be so powerful and so amazing that when the nations came in, it would be like a, uh, like a river flowing uphill into Zion. And Isaiah is full of all over these, these prophecies that one day God is going to draw the nations 
into, into Zion. In other words, he's going to draw the nations to himself. When we say nations, right, in, in the Old Testament sense, there's the nation of Israel, and then there's the nations, all of those that are not Israel, the, the Gentile people. But the prophecies of Isaiah is that God has always been a God that he's going to draw and bring all people to, to himself. The fulfillment of that gets very interesting in this passage. Okay? So this passage, which, which relies largely on, on prophecies from Isaiah, the prophecies from Isaiah often telling the story of how God calls the nations into Zion or calls the nations to himself uh, uh, are assumed here, but the fulfillment is very interesting because in this case, the fulfillment is true. The church at Philadelphia is made up predominantly of Gentile people. Though there might have been a remnant uh, of, of Jewish believers in the church, the church is actually made up of the nations. And so what God does when he says, there, there's, there's coming a time when I will make them come, those who claim to be uh, Jews but are not, the synagogue of Satan, I will make those people come and they will bow. What has happened is a reversal and a flipping of, of the fulfillment. It is true that the nations have come in God has drawn the nations. That's what's happened in, 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 in Philadelphia. The nations are there, right? Those people who were, who were not by ethnicity Jewish, those who were not by ethnicity or by blood descendants of, of Abraham, have nonetheless come to accept the Messiah, who the, the, the one who is, uh, who is the, the true Abraham, so to speak, the one, uh, the... Uh, the, the true leader of the people uh, of Israel, we would say even the true Israel, they have come to accept, the nations have come to accept Jesus as, as all of those things. And so the church in Philadelphia is made up of Gentiles. The nations have come in to Zion, in that sense, right there, right there in, in Turkey. So right there at Philadelphia, the nations have come into Zion. And when they get there, though, they find an interesting thing. The inhabitants of Zion have, for some reason, left they're not there. And so the, the interesting thing that happens in this reversal is, is that God in his wisdom and in his goodness is going to use the nations which have been called into Zion to call the inhabitants of Zion back to Zion. That's what happens in this passage. And so it's a very interesting reversal. Those who, who claimed to be Jews but were not, those who were members of the synagogue of Satan, those people who, who ethnically... From, from the Old Testament uh, were descendants of Abraham. Those who should have been inhabitants of the city for some reason have left the city uninhabited, but God in his goodness had called the nations into the city. When the nations get into the city, they realize that the, the original inhabitants aren't there, but God in one of the great reversals like only God can do is going to use the nations to call the original inhabitants back in as well. And so there's a supernatural thing going on where God uses the, uses the, the, the Gentile nations who have been called to Christ to call back in here in Philadelphia. He says, I'm going to do a supernatural thing. Those who persecute you, those who hate you, those who try to kill you, the synagogue of Satan, he calls them, they're going to come in and they're going to bow down too. So God... <laughs> Who, who worked through the, through the children of Israel, through the covenants with, with Abraham, through the seed, the offspring of David, through the very person of the Jewish blood of our, of our Savior, Jesus, called the nations into Zion. Here in, here in Philadelphia, the nations were in Zion. In other words, the nations were in Christ. But the original inhabitants of the city had, had abandoned it. And he says, but I'm going to do something supernatural. I'm going to call them back in and they'll bow before you. So we'll come back to that in a minute. Let's just finish out the, um, the passage. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour that it, of trial that is coming on the whole world uh, and try those who dwell on, on earth. Um, whole world, sometimes when you encounter it in Revelation is, a, is an interesting word, uh, actually, in Scripture, because... When we hear whole world, we think entire planet. A lot of times when original readers hear whole world, um, they think of that as more localized. So um, it might have been used in their time, the whole world as the whole sphere of their um, uh, of their existence, of all of the nation of, of Israel, all of our locality. Um, it doesn't really make a, make a big difference, uh, except for to understand this, is that throughout the time... Um, 
just as a pause, our, our view on Revelation is that Revelation is telling the whole story uh, and it covers the whole time period between Jesus' first coming and his, his second coming. And so it's talking about, about that. And so um, rather than, than, than viewing it as, as sequential, right? This happens, this happens, this happens, this happens. We, we view it as cyclical. These are the sorts of things. These are the types of things that happen throughout all time in, in all history. And so uh, when I read Whole World, whether you read that in a localized sense or whether you read that in a global sense, um, I don't read it in a, in a final sense. And I, I say that uh, to give you kind of a, a thought contra, which you might have read in books like uh, the Left Behind series, or if you're old enough, the late great planet Earth and other books like, like that, that would view this as sequential. They would read the world, whole world. They would, they would point to one specific period of, of, of tribulation. They would limit it to a specific amount of time, which we'll get to that in, in the future. I would simply say that when he says that trial is coming on the whole world, that is a statement about what happens to the whole planet all the time throughout history when they are apart from Christ. Um, if you live in America and you watch the news, you should be frightened by what's going on in, in, our, in our country. Um, people who know me know that I'm super optimistic. Uh, they also know that I am not like uh, the one who, who watches out the window for, for biblical prophecy to be being fulfilled. You know, uh, that's, that's kind of not my, my thing usually, but as I watch the news daily and it just tends to get more and more and more and more and more awful, every day. You should live in, in, in the reality that things in our world are not great. Uh, I will testify to you uh, uh, unequivocally. I believe that Jesus is the ultimate victor of history. I believe that, that Jesus wins in all time. I believe that Jesus is going to call people to himself. Uh, I believe that the prophecy of Isaiah, the nations flowing in to Zion uh, 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 uphill, I, I believe that to, to be true. In other words, I do believe that throughout history and throughout time that more and more people will come come to, to Jesus. I believe in those sorts of victorious things, but at the same time, I, I, I acknowledge this reality is that great government unrest, uh, great spiritual unrest, uh, great national unrest, worldwide unrest, can coexist with, with great movements of, of Jesus Christ. Otherwise, we have no way into which to explain what happens in, in China when they crack down on Christianity and Christianity explodes. We have no way to explain how every time, uh, or most times, would be more accurate to say, most times when persecution comes in a given place, Christianity grows. It, it doesn't go away. And so that is to say that there is this, this, this physical reality or this, this temporal reality to this, this place we live in, this time we live in, this reality that we live on a broken planet called Earth. Even all of creation is groaning to be made new. We look forward to a new heavens and new earth, uh, all of which to say I believe that tribulation is, is endemic to the human experience. We do not need to point to a specific three and a half period or any other time period, but, but trial and tribulation until the final advent, the final coronation of our King Jesus Christ, the final establishment of, of or uh, laying out of, of his kingdom, you will experience trial in, in this, this world. And so uh, in America, we're not used to that. We have not really experienced uh, trial, at least in our generations. I was thinking about um, the, the Great Depression and the level that that, that that fell to. And I was thinking about how most of us growing up in Argent can't even comprehend that there was a time in America where it was that bad because we have grown up under, under prosperity. Um, and so all of which to say is I think that, that trial is, is endemic to humanity and tribulation is endemic to humanity until such time as Jesus himself returns and, and, the, and the, the wedding supper happens, right? Until the final consummation of Jesus and, and his bride. Um, even in America where we've experienced relatively little trial, that's its own trial because uh, it seems as if in America the greater amount of freedom, the greater lack of trial, the greater lack of fidelity we have had as a, as a people to, to the person of Jesus Christ. So that's its own problem there. But I say that to say this, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world. That is a promise to them. In other words, trial happens in humanity. Jesus is with us. I do not think... Um, and, and commentators agree that, that this promise from Jesus is that he is going to protect them physically from the trial that comes. 
that, that's not his promise. In fact, Hebrews talks about all these people who followed Jesus and the, and, the, and the physical persecutions that they went through about how the earth wasn't worthy of them. And yet the promise is he is the key holder. What he has opened, no one can shut. He has his people. No one can take his people from. So he will protect them spiritually from the trial that is to come. He will be with them in the trial that, that is, is to come. They will not be destroyed by the trial that is to come. And yet I do not think that that is a, is a promise either of 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 prosperity, I don't think that that is is a, is a promise of um, of health. I, I don't think that those things are promised there, but rather that that Jesus, um, having the grand view of being the orchestrator of history, knows that which is best for us and protects us spiritually and will be with us. He will not allow them uh, spiritual destruction to those who who dwell on the earth. Uh, Verse 11, I am coming soon. What a beautiful phrase, right? Um, it's another one. We encounter coming soon in, in Scripture, uh, in, especially coming out of a generation that it's interesting. Grand Rapids, um, Grand Rapids is a very Reformed city as to its, as to its churches. Uh, the Reformed churches are, are predominantly, and from their own catechisms, ah, millennial meaning that, that they didn't believe the kinds of things that were written and left behind books written by, uh, by Tim LaHaye there and, and Dr. Jenkins. Uh, they didn't believe in the sorts of things that happened in Kirk Cameron movies. Uh, and yet, those books had such a great influence that sometimes you'll talk to a person from, you say, what, what congregation are you a part of? And they'll be a part of uh, Remembrance, CRC or Remembrance Reform. And then they'll get to talking about it, and you'll realize that they believe in a form of what's called eschatology or in time system that is based not really on scripture, but rather on Tim LaHaye books. And trust me, those are two very different things. So it's interesting that the great cultural influence is there so that when we hear, I am coming again, we view that only as, as the, the, the second coming, um, the what they in those books would call the rapture, the snatching up of the dirt, all of that sort of thing. Uh, that's not necessarily what's happening here uh, when he says he's coming. Uh, Jesus actually has comings that are not that are not physical comings throughout Scripture. He comes in judgment. He, he comes in this case. He's coming in comfort. He's coming to be with them. He's saying, "I'm going to visit you. I'm going to be among you." Right? Again, if if this is uh, is specific to the to the second coming, uh, the the message is not ultimately ultimately changed uh, there either. But he says, "I am coming soon. Hold fast to what you have, so that no one may seize your your crown. I will be with you. I will strengthen you. I will protect you. I love you. I care for you." It, it's saying, "I am I am the comforter." Remember, he he starts this by saying that he dwells amongst the the, the churches. He walks amongst the lampstands. He is amongst them. And so this is an affirmation that no matter what the church at Philadelphia might go through, no matter what struggle they might go through, no matter what persecution they might come through, maybe even looking back to that, that movement uh, where, where the, the synagogue of Satan is going to turn to him, he's saying, be, be prepared. I am amongst you. I know what's coming on. I'm going to come and I'm going to act soon. So uh, at the very least, comfort may be referencing the fact that there's coming a time where he's going to turn their enemies into their brothers and into their sisters. See that no one seizes your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He's going to give them a long, a long list of, of, of gifts from him, a long list of rewards from him. And what it comes down to is each of those things listed is essentially the, the, the same thing. I will make him a pillar in the temple of my, of my God as you go forward in, uh, in Revelation or backwards in Scripture. We know what's, what's good about the temple and the temple is the Holy of Holies. In the Old Testament, what's good about the Holy of Holies? The Ark of the Covenant, what's good about the very presence, the dwelling place of God. There's a temple. God tabernacles there. He dwells there. We know in John 1, uh, 
uh, 14, when the word becomes flesh, it dwelt, it tabernacles amongst us. We know later on in Revelation that they said there was no need of a temple in the city, the lamb and the Lord, that's its temple. And so what this is saying is that the person of God, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. In other words, he will dwell in my presence forever. He will be with me. My presence will not be taken from him. My presence will not be apart from him. Uh, uh, never shall he go out of it. The, the dwelling place of the people of Philadelphia, those who, who followed, uh, followed the Lord, those who were the Lord's, they would have the presence of God and the presence of God would be evermore with them. They would not go out of it. Uh, I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God and the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven. In other words, contra, by the way, uh, and I don't really mean to pick on... on, on um, uh, on, on a contrary view as much this morning, just to point out biblical things, is that the, the view that t- people typically have is that they would go up into heaven, that, that all the Christians would be taken up into heaven. The view that Revelation has is that heaven comes down, right? And that heaven comes down as heaven comes down, as the earth is renewed, that heaven and earth uh, uh, become uh, molded together in such a way that the very presence of, of God, we are with him and we are amongst him, that we inhabit the new earth, the presence of God is fully, totally, and completely with us. In this case, he said, heaven is coming down. When it comes down, my presence will be always with you. You will have direct access to me. And it is true that we have now, we can approach the, the throne, we can approach God, but we approach him in a way that it will not be the same uh, in, in, in the future. It, w- it will be fuller. It will be complete. It will be consummated. We will be in the very presence of, of God and the King and the Lamb evermore. Uh, the name of the city of the God, the new Jerusalem, all those things to say, you are my people and you will dwell with me. I will never go away from you. You will have direct access to me. So it's a radical claim when you think about it. The kings of the earth would make no such claim over you. Even if you were good friends with a king of of the earth, even a minor king of the earth, there would be moments where his busyness, where his job might take him away from you. But the Lord of of life, the the king of all that is, the king of kings, the Lord of lords, the coming king, the one who is coming in, in the future, he has no such lack of bandwidth. In other words, he can orchestrate all that he must orchestrate. He can hold all that he must hold. He can do all that he must do. And it doesn't take away a bit of who he is. He, he is not limited. He is God. And you get to dwell with him in his presence forevermore. Philadelphia. That's what he's saying. You get to be with him forevermore. He, 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 even a good father has to go to work. Right? A good father goes to work and he might go and work for his children. He may go do things for his children, but he's away from, from his children. And so he might miss things that go on in life. His children, he needs a report. But this is God, the omni one. He's omnipresent which means he's present everywhere. He's omnipotent, which means he's powerful, totally. He has all the power, and because of that, he doesn't lack for bandwidth. He doesn't have to leave us when he goes to carry out what he carries out, what he goes, when he sustains what he sustains. He is the righteous one. He upholds the earth. He's holding together this temple, this, all of that by, by his hands, but there's none of that that takes away his bandwidth for his presence with you. Which, by the way, is a present reality, too. There's a future reality that gets more beautiful and more amazing, but his omnipresence is no less omni now. His omnipotence is no less omni now. It's, it's everywhere. And so there is a sense in which we should look forward to this because there's consummation and there's, there, there's, a, there's, a, there's, a, there's a greater sense of, a, of that reality on our part. And of course, the wiping out of all that is evil. And yet at the same time, uh, it's true now too. Uh, in my own name, he who has ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So, let give me just a second to to apply this for you. All right? Here's here's what I what I walk away with. Obviously, the that the second part, the beauty, the beauty of the reward of walking with Jesus, is that one day, one day, if you overcome, you walk with Him, you're going to be rewarded as well. 
And, and like we said, the message to the churches, they're specific to the churches, but they're not limited to the churches. They're, they're applied to the whole church. And so there comes a day that if you walk with him and you're an overcomer, that there, there is coming a day when he is going to come and he's going to make all things new and he's going to make all things right and he's going to, and he's going to consummate his kingdom. When he consummates the kingdom, he's going to wipe out all the sin that exists. Heaven descends, the new earth is new, and you get to dwell in the presence of the living God forever. That is amazingly good news. You, you should live into that. But then you back up and you say, so why is he saying specifically, why is he using this as a, as a reward? Why does, what is this a reward for? This was a reward for them because in the face of persecution, in the face of struggle, they continued in their good work. What was their work? It was the testimony to the goodness of their God. They spoke the name of Jesus. They, they communicated the name of Jesus. They, they preached the name of Jesus even in the face of persecution, even in the face of, of, of struggle struggle, right? So then here, though, in, in the middle is what I think is interesting. The idea that Gentiles would inhabit Zion, and the, 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 the original inhabitants would be outside is interesting. And then what you come to is, if, even if you think about it in our, in our own time, the idea that large groups of people who are radically opposed to the good news of Jesus would come in to Jesus is an amazing promise that sometimes in our head seems far-fetched, right? We would never say that's far-fetched. I'm just saying we live in this struggle of reality that we go, really? Like he could bring in like all those people? Like the idea that God has the ability and the power to do something that is supernatural in terms of salvation is sometimes, unfortunately, foreign to how we think. And so what I would like to encourage us to do, however, is make it not foreign to how we think, but make it a part of our prayer life, make it a part of our expectation, make it a part of our reality. Because, as I said, I am not convinced, unfortunately, uh, of, of the long-term health of the country in which we now reside, right? And I, I don't say that as a prophet, I just say that as someone who watches the news, right? And so, you know, things are bad, maybe, maybe, but I don't know. I can't promise you that, like, like, your children grow up in an America like you grew up in. I can't promise you that they grow up with freedom like you, like you've grown up with. I see every day new sorts of things that try and change the laws that are going to limit the religious freedom uh, of people who live in this country. And so what I would encourage you to do is to, is to lean in to this promise, lean into the, that this. If God can take those who were persecutors and haters of those who confessed his name and make those people into his own people again and make them understand that, that, that the, the Gentile people were loved and make them appreciate it and worship God because of it? If he can do that, then he is the same God, the same God that he was in, in, in Philadelphia in, in approximately somewhere around 80, 70 to 90. And the same God that he was then is the same God that he is now. And the same things that he did then are the same things that he can do now, and I would even suggest that, that, that because he's written this to us, because he's given it to us, we should expect that the things that he said that he would do there, he will do now, he wants to do now, he desires to do now, right? And we do not have an orientation to it because we have not seen in America any sort of grand scale mass conversion revival in a lot of years, we have, not, we have not seen that. And the reason we have not seen it is related to probably a lot of things. But one of those is there's a complete and total lack of expectation that it will happen. We don't believe that he can do it, so we don't have an expectation that he can do it, and we don't pray that he can do it. And yet I expect that if we lived someplace else, that if we had grown up in China, if we had grown up as a believer in the underground church in, in China, that we would have a greater expectation Right? I don't know new numbers. I know that, that as, as, as much as 10 years ago, that 1,200 people were coming to Christ every half hour in China, which makes 2,400 uh, every hour. You multiply that out, and you get a lot of, of people that you get millions and millions and millions and millions of people by year coming to, to, to Jesus in China, India, and other places where, it's, where, where there's persecution uh, against it. And so I, we don't have an expectation, but Scripture seems to have a promise, 
and it seems to be happening in, in other places. And at, at the same time, I can make you no promise about what will happen to the kingdom of America, but the scripture makes clear promises about what happens to the kingdom of God. He is the one who holds the key. He is opening the gate. He's, he's opening the door. He's, he's beckoning people in, and he's bringing them in. And those who he opens the door to, no one can shut the door to them. He is that one. He is the one who draws people in. So you should have an expectation and a prayer life that expects that many, many people would come to Christ. And so that's difficult, right? That, that comes from one who spent the last 16, 17 years uh, of his life in, in urban ministry, which can be a difficult field, right? Which can be a slow field. You, I, I say that as one who takes great, great... Um, uh, great comfort in reading stories of the great missionary William Carey. William Carey in the 17th uh, century goes to India to be a missionary. They call him the, the, the grandfather of modern missions. He goes there, and for seven years, not a single person comes to Christ. Uh, during that seven years, he works on translating the Bible into the language, and as he's about to finish that, as he's about to finish his project, the, the, the shed or the place where all of those, the office where all of those manuscripts were kept burns down, and everything continues to fall apart on, on him. Uh, I tell you all of this to say that sometimes, for me, ministry has been difficult enough that God revives my spirit by reminding me it's rough all over. Right? And he reminds me, I read the story of William Carey, who's called the, the grandfather of modern missions, and he reminds me that, that for seven years, not a single person came to know, know Jesus. And I have walked through that my, myself. The, the thing that, 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 that gives me solace is that when we do a 10-year, we did a 10-year anniversary back some six years ago, and when we walked through that, we were able to tell, tell the stories of people who had come to Christ, people who did not know him, people who had been baptized uh, into, into the church, people who had been, become members of, of, of the covenant community of Christ. We had lots and lots and lots and lots of those stories, actually. We had stories over 10 years. William Carey, the grandfather of modern missions, had no stories. Nobody was coming to to Jesus, right? So I have often uh, had to feed my soul by reading missionary biography, and sometimes what worked best for me was stories where the missionaries struggled, because honestly, sometimes urban ministry can be a struggle, and yet I cannot quit, I don't give up, because I see this, if God can call those who are members of the synagogue of Satan, and there can be a grand-scale salvation of those people, and they can be brought into Zion, I need to be the kind of person that says, well, then why not Godwin Heights? It's been a struggle for, for, uh, for, for 16 years in, in some sense, and not struggle, but it's been, it's been slower. It's not been, been grand-scale, but the reality is God doesn't seem to operate according to the same clock I'm on. The thing about him being both omnipresent and omnipotent, he's also timeless. He extends forever into the past and forever into the future. He's got no beginning and no end, and he's so not on the same time clock that I'm on. And so you've heard me say before, and I'll, I'll say again, I know this, that when the missionaries first went to, to China, they, they went to China and they tried to share Christ, they tried to share Christ, they tried to share Christ, they tried to share Christ. When the missionaries got kicked out of China in 1955, there was only a handful of Christians in the whole nation. And yet, many, many, many Western missionaries had gone and been buried in the cemetery there, so that when uh, I was reading the story of, of Brother Yoon, who called the heavenly man in China, one of the things he went out of his way was to thank the missionaries who came before because they laid the foundation and they laid the bed upon which the, the, the conversions would happen. So that now, when 24 people are coming, 2,400 people are coming to Christ every hour in, in China that is built on the foundation of, of the missionaries. Where are the missionaries? They are buried in China. They're, 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 they're those, those Western names on tombstones in China. They died years before they ever saw the fulfillment, but they formed the foundation for what would happen. God does what he's going to do, and I believe that he's going to save people. I do not have a completely pessimistic view of history. I believe that God, being who he is, what he says in 1 Peter 2, the Lord is not slow concerning his promises, but is long-suffering towards you, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance, suggests to me that God wants many, 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 many people to come to him. But he's not on my time. And in China, he wasn't on their time. And so those gravestones in China formed the foundation. And for years and years and years and years, they saw nothing. So I say, even then, and I've said it before, if you bury me in Godwin Heights, let my gravestone only be a foundation for a grand-scale salvation of the people of Godwin Heights. It doesn't need to happen in my, my lifetime. Only, Lord, let it happen. 
right? I am willing for that. And what I'm, my point about that is, is this, is that I want us to be the same kind of people with the expectation that God is going to save people. I don't think sometimes we have that expectation. Um, I don't want to say that we are sometimes spiritually Eeyore, but sometimes we are, right? You know Eeyore from Winnie the Pooh? He's the donkey who has the bad attitude, right? And so he always goes with them, and he always does what they do, but he says, oh my, if Pooh goes, so will I, right? And sometimes I think that our, our, our orientation towards sharing Christ in any given place, towards doing the works that we're called to do in Revelation, our orientation is, well, we should share Jesus. No one will believe, but we should do it. I think sometimes that is our attitude, I'm simply suggesting that if God can draw the synagogue of Satan to himself and make them then bow and confess that the Gentiles are, are loved and worship the God of Scripture, then he could draw the people of God with heights. But it's not just about, it's not about that grand scale. Here's the reality. Like, if you're like me, you have people in your life and in your personal orbit where you're like, you're sharing Jesus with them, but you're just like... They're never getting saved. There is no way that person is getting saved. It might be family members. It might be friends. It might be all those kinds of people. But you're, you're like, ah, I'm going to share them, but they're never getting saved. That person's going Here, to... Here's what I want you to hear. If God can supernaturally rescue the synagogue of Satan, I don't know who you got in your life that he cannot supernaturally rescue. And I think that's what you should walk away with. You should walk away with this this peace and this motivation that God desires to save people. His promise to the church here in Philadelphia is that he will save people. And if that's his promise to the church of Philadelphia that he can save the synagogue of Satan, who in your life can't he save? What co-worker? What family member? Um, what relationship? What neighborhood can he reach? What country can he reach, Right? So that's, that's where I think I want us to, to walk away. I want us to walk away praying towards, expecting towards, being excited towards this reality that God rescues people. He is the door opener. He's the door opener. He holds the key of David. He holds the key to the kingdom. If Jesus holds the key to the kingdom, he's a door opener. That's what it said. He's, he wants to open the door. We should walk in that reality. We should walk in that, not as Eeyore, but with excitement going, God is going to do what God does, and he's going to rescue people, and I'm going to share them because he will rescue people, right? I can't promise that it happens in, in your lifetime. There's all kinds of dead Westerners in a, in a Chinese cemetery, but they're in the presence of God. And I guarantee you that in the presence of God, they celebrate when a person, every time a person comes to Christ in China and they're coming to Christ at such a fast pace, it must be like a party all the time, right? So maybe, 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 maybe you're called and your witness is called to be a witness in this life and you're just a foundational tombstone in something that comes a lot longer. Well, so be it. But maybe you pray towards this end. Maybe God is going to be so good as to let you experience and see what he's about to do. Can you imagine the church at Philadelphia? I wish we had that recorded in, in, in history. I wish we had the story of what, what was like. The, I mean, if God promises it, I assume it to be true, right? What was it like in the church of Philadelphia when the synagogue of Satan laid down their arms against the church and joined it? When they bowed down before the God? Do you think that the, the, the celebration in the church was amazing? Do you think that the, like, imagine what that was like. My encouragement is that we would pray to the same ends, that, that in our own time, in our own place. Who's our synagogue of Satan? Maybe ISIS, right? Maybe, uh, maybe ISIS, maybe all these sorts of things. Like, what happened if, if God should choose to save and rescue them? Who's, who is it in your own life? Is it your, your unbelieving father, your unbelieving mother, unbelieving daughter? What happened if God chooses to move there? Is it Godwin Heights? Is it Godfrey Lee? Is it Burton Heights? Where is it? What if God chooses to move in a huge way there? What I know is, is if he wrote it, then it's true. And if it's true, then I should pray towards that end, and I should expect towards that end, and I should be, that I should be, be living in, in that reality, and I pray that all of us will be. 
that we would be overcomers for the cause of Christ, that one day when heaven comes down and heaven meets, heaven meets earth and there's a new heaven and a new earth, that we get to celebrate with all the synagogues of Satan that have turned from Satan to Christ. And I pray that we would pray towards that end and we would live towards that end every day. Pray with me. Uh,